Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Darrick. Hello, Ben. Gabe Darrick Esquire. What's Is there a particular name you want to use this week? What do you mean? I don't do a pseudonyms, do I? Maybe Gabe Darrick is a pseudonym. You've explored Sir Gabe Darrick. Oh, have I? You've explored Master Gabe Darrick, the master of your domain. Yeah. You've explored Gabe Darrick Esquire. All right. Is there any other particular... Monica, yeah. you'd like to adopt this episode. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, just do your little intro again and I've got a name. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we're doing a not take two, which is kind of like doing a take two, but you actually hear the take one. So, hey there, everyone. Yada, 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 yada. Regular banter and buddy. Ben Phelps. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. Look at you. That's right. Very clever. Very clever. Very good. Okay, you know what's clever? Yes. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. Very clever. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today we'll be reviewing two twin movies about a swashbuckling adventurer and a damsel out of her depth who find themselves in a love-hate relationship as they search for a valuable stone. It's Romancing the Stone versus Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Let the swashbuckling begin. Very good. (laughs) Very clever. Very good. (laughs) Uh, So as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 30th of March, 1984, Romance in the Stone was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A mousy... Mousy? Yeah, apparently mousy. A mousy romance novelist sets out for Columbia to ransom her kidnapped sister and soon finds herself in the middle of a dangerous adventure hunting for treasure with a mercenary rogue. Wow, that makes it sound like she's the one who's holding her sister to ransom. Yeah, that's a terrible synopsis, isn't it? Sets off to Columbia to ransom her kidnapped sister. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's probably grammatically right. Like, if your sister is kidnapped, you ransom her, I guess. But I don't know, that seems weird. I've never actually read or heard the use of ransom as a verb in that way. Yeah. Anyway, who knows? Anywho, Gabe, did you originally catch Romance in the Stone at the age of one when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience your nappy like? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know what's weird? This is one of those movies where when I was a kid, I would see it in the video store all the time and I would just never rent it. I don't know. There's just something about it that just screamed to me, nah. And so, weirdly, this I watched this movie for the first time for this podcast. And you know me, Ben. I've seen all kinds of garbage crap twice. It seems odd to me that I'd never seen this. I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes. Most notably, Danny DeVito is in it, whomst I love. Uh, but, yeah, very strange. And I still haven't seen the sequel. So, you know, this was a fresh watch for me. Okay, that really amazes me because this has so many tick-the-gay boxes. It has... Michael Douglas. Uh, what? Okay, <laughs> sure. <I'd>, yep. I'd. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of Michael Douglas striding away from the bed in basic instinct, just f- doing that huge butt flex, <laughs> Gay would really appreciate this and go, yep, uh, I'm here for this. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, you're correct, but my love for basic instinct is more the film as a whole. It's not Michael Douglas. I mean, I don't just love Michael Douglas. You know, I'm not like... Here, like, oh, boy, do I love 
like what's a sh- what's a what's an average Michael Douglas programmer? Uh, King of California, Wonder Boys. Hey, no, hey man, that's a great movie. I was just trying anyway. to throw you a bone. <laughs> okay, a perfect murder. Ah, uh, good example. Okay, go on, go on. What 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 else? What else do I love about Romancing the Stone that should have made it a well uh, a, a must watch for me? Look, I don't want to you know kind of like you know jump the gun and step on best poster, but okay, this has a very evocative classic 80s poster. It's in that vein of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the whole Star Wars trilogy where it's that, what would you call it, that naturalistic painted effect? Yeah, there's a, isn't there an artist who's very famous for those posters? What's his name? Um, yeah, we'll look it up um, because he actually has that style and when they did the new trilogy of Star Wars, so The Force Awakens was the first one out of the gate. They did try to recreate that. In fact, actually, I think Lucas actually might have tried to recreate it as well for the prequels, as I recall. I could be wrong, but I think he did. Yeah, uh, not Drew. Drew Struzan? Drew Struzan. I think that's yeah, his name. that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy. Yeah, okay. Well, that's interesting. So I myself, this falls in that category of a film that, I never had seen until this podcast, so I watched it exclusively for the recording. But another classic example of film that was playing pretty much on loop on commercial free-to-air television on a Friday night, maybe at a stretch on a Saturday night, but I feel like I had seen this film but hadn't seen this film. It's that Mandela effect where I've somehow in my brain merged this film and the sequel, which only came out a year later, which is quite remarkable, like a really fast turnaround, Romancing the Stone. No, sorry. Um, Jewel of the Nile? Jewel of the Nile. And they just blend in. They just blend in. So I kind of conflated both of those movies together. And I'd always imagined the film from the poster, but I can't recall any scene in this film that resembles the poster at all. The poster looks like it's something like that uh, – you know that film, um, George of the Jungle, the live adaptation or the live action version? Do I? With Brendan Fraser. Oh, yeah. The poster resembles the vibe of that movie. Uh, you're saying there's no bit in this film where Michael Douglas swings on a vine. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, that's right. He does it. Not quite. Anywho, I myself had caught it in dribs and drabs. I can't recall if it was the Stone version or the Nile version, but I didn't see it until this podcast. So I think we're both kind of babes in the woods in that regard. However, I know that when it came to only a month or two later, on the 23rd of May, 1984, you'll have some sort of connection here because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was released. Here's its synopsis from IMDb. In 1935, Indiana Jones arrives in India, still part of the British Empire, and is asked to find a mystical stone. He then stumbles upon a secret cult committing enslavement and human sacrifices in the catacombs of an ancient palace. So, Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched Temple of the Doom. Of the Doom? Temple of Doom. Temple of the Doom. Um... I saw this, well, the first time I saw this, I only saw probably the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of it. I was just a, just a little kid, eager to watch perhaps probably my first Indiana Jones movie, and it got up to the part where 
the guy pulls the heart out of the other guy and I was terrified and I ran out of the room and my dad mercilessly hacked shit on me for the next, I don't know, 30 years. Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> Hang on. How old were you and what age were you for your dad to hang shit on you? Well, I must have been like six or seven, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's hard to remember the specifics of that sort of age. Uh, Unless you're like so scarred it's just indelible in your memory. Well, yeah, I mean, I've rem- I have I don't recall a lot of my, you know, th- my childhood, but I do recall this. So it was been, it is a fairly indelible memory. Thanks, Dad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I saw it when I was a little kid and then I was scared and then I must have watched the rest of it at some point because I've seen this movie a trillion times. Although, although I think the first Indiana Jones movie I watched all of was probably... The Last Crusade, which I got as a VHS tie-in through McDonald's. Then I probably watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then finally, summoning the courage, probably at 28 years old, I finally came back and rewatched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Okay. Then I called my dad and I said, Dad, fuck you. Okay, there, there is so much to unpack here. I'm okay, all right. <laughs> speechless. Okay, so hang on. I can't go any further until we discuss this free VHS from McDonald's. So walk me through this. Well, I mean, I must have bought a Happy Meal and they gave me a free VHS of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and I just watched it heaps. Yeah, but back then, like, a VHS was pretty expensive. I mean, it was cheaper than beta, but to get a free video for a $4.95 meal, that's a remarkable deal. I think so. I mean, maybe I'm misremembering, maybe it was came from Sizzler or something, a more upmarket family restaurant. <laughs> Who knows? But I definitely had a, a VHS that I got as part of some sort of tie-in, you know, merchandising tie-in from some sort of store, and it was Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which is not the movie we're here to talk about. The movie we're here to talk about is Temple of Doom and the scarring effect that it had on me as a child. No, I'll get back to that. But oh, okay, great. Can I just, just follow this rabbit hole uh, yeah, because okay. this is curious to me. Okay. There is something remarkable about that time in our lives. There's an age gap between us, but we're still in that era where hard copies were something to be treasured, right? You had tangible merchandise and you had hard copy media, VHS, then DVD, then Blu-ray. And you don't get that in the same way. Like my kids have no experience of that kind of connection to film. So we have an expression in our family, or an acronym, I should say, called mm. LPOCs. L-P-O-C. Little pieces of crap. So the stuff you get when you, say, spend more than 100 bucks at a grocery store or you got to get a Happy Meal at KFC, McDonald's, Hungry Jack's, etc. LPOCs. And LPOCs are basically the sort of things that can't be recycled, end up in the bin, some sort of turtle wears it as a hat. Uh, like they're not the sort of things that are particularly useful in any way and they're just disposable pieces of junk. Mm-hmm. And that's disappointing. But when you get something like a VHS like that, you can really watch mm. that. It's actually oh. used to it. It's got value. Yeah. And my kids experience The Simpsons and Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars all through Disney+. Plus. So – there's no connection with 
the cover, you know, of a VHS, the cover of a DVD, or if, you know, back in the day of CDs, the cover of a CD. Like there's no mm. association with artwork in the same way, which I find really sad because right. I, when I think of those films, I think of Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom or Romancing the Stone, I think of the artwork. Totally. And it, what's bizarre is that you and I had never seen that Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner film at all, but we recalled the artwork from the video store. And kids these days just don't get that. There's no connection that you might have seen the movie, but at least you feel some sort of connection or understanding as to the tone or the genre, which I think is a real shame. Oh, absolutely. Plus I used to hide weed in my VHS uh, cases. So kids will miss out on the opportunity to hide drugs in the DVD cases, which, you know, it's always handy. So I don't know where your kids are going to hide their drugs when they get older, Ben. Well, we have three Bibles in the house, so possibly there. <laughs> oh, nice. Actually, nice. That, that, sorry, the first Bible is reserved for a gun. The second Bible is reserved for those, you know, those needle shots you see in Pulp Fiction, the adrenaline shot. But potentially you could carve out the third Bible. So, you know, there's a window there. Or you get one of those particularly mega fat iPhone covers that has like, you know, space and pockets on the other side. Jeez, how much weed are your kids planning on smoking? Anyway, hey, I did find a newspaper article. (laughs) How many credit cards are they carrying? That's true. I found a newspaper (laughs) article from 1991. Admittedly, this is in America about McDonald's and Paramount Home Video teaming to sell Indiana Jones videos through Maccas. So I didn't make this up. It was definitely Maccas. And, but I think you had to buy the videos. So here they must have been like six bucks or something on top of your Happy Meal. So six bucks back then is probably like, I guess now. $37? No? <laughs> I don't know. 15 bucks maybe? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Uh, and that's that's American. Anyway, my point is it was definitely Maccas, but uh, there you go. Okie doke. Um, well, let me talk you through my experience. Okay, this is amazing. I had never seen this movie before recording this podcast. What? What did you say? Really? And I had it for exactly the same reason that you were terrified. Holy shit. I don't want to sound like I'm gatekeeping, Ben, but you shouldn't be doing any sort of film podcast if you hadn't seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. (laughs) I mean, I know people don't like it when people say that type of thing on things like Twitter, like, you know, well, you know, not everyone should have seen it, but seriously, man, fuck. Like, come on. This is like a mandatory. Yeah, Gabe, don't own me. Don't own me, man. Yeah, mate. Owned. But you as an adult man were still scared. So <laughs> that wasn't the reason why. So it, I avoided it because I grew up in a a place, you know, have streets or a crescent or a parkway or an avenue. I grew up in a place which is a cul-de-sac. So we had a little street that had a dead end and we all played in the cul-de-sac where it goes up like a street and then kind of like turns into like a, a circle shape. So it resembles from Google Earth like an eye with the dot and the stick connected. And we'd play in there and we'd play outside and we'd play pretending we're like Star Wars people on land speeders or we'd pretend we're perhaps Indiana Jones. However, the kids across the road who are only six months to a year older, they started reading Fangoria and they were getting into like heavy shit when they were around year four four, year five, year six, which for our international listeners, yeah. Sound like cool kids. It's around the ages of 10 to 12. And they watched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And all they could talk about was a scene, spoiler alert, where the antagonist 
Stab throws his hand into the guy's chest and pulls out his beating heart. And they described it so viscerally that I was probably actually more traumatised because I think often the imagination, your own imagination, the audience's imagination is just more powerful, more evocative than actually seeing the visual depiction. And so I was just traumatised by my overactive imagination and thought I'm never going to see this. So cut to we're at that kind of at that VHS Beta Wars period around around 1988, 89, 90. And I saw Indiana Jones because that had a beta and there were certain videos that you'd only get on beta and you'd get the first Indiana Jones film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I saw that. Years later, I saw with my grandfather probably two or three times, the one with Sean Connery, The Last Crusade. So forever and ever, I'd always seen one and three of the trilogy but never the middle one. And so, yeah. For the first time I saw it, exclusively for this podcast, and it was so weird to see this movie, having seen every other version, to see this one, to fill that gap. Wow. And we'll, we'll get to my review. Wow, that's, that's, that's weird and interesting. I mean, I never knew this about you, Ben. This changes everything. Yeah, I know. I'm totally like recalibrating your reality. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, this is like the Matrix. This is like the, Matrix. This is like the bit where Neo goes, huh, deja vu. He, like, sees a second cat. Mm. Everything changes. It's all changed. All right. Well, there you go. All right. So before we go any further, we should perhaps just jump into a quick little comparison of these twin movies and find out how we got here that these two films came out at the same time. So let's start with Romance in the Stone. So it was actually an original film. So this is a fascinating story. It was written by a female screenwriter called Diane Thomas. I wouldn't ordinarily say female screenwriter, but we're back in an era where not as many female screenwriters had the opportunity to actually write something like a, you know, a romance adventure. It was very much a, a male domain. And she wrote this sort of like as one of it was her first published screenplay. And we're at a point in time where Zemeckis has, like, just struck out. His two previous films have just been, like, totally unsuccessful. He needs to basically helm a, a – by the way, segue. Don't you love how we always say helm now? You used to direct, now you helm. Anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> he had to direct a stable, secure hit, otherwise he was dead and buried. And if you want to ever get up Back to the Future, which was – our previous podcast episode, Back to the Future versus Peggy Sue Got Married. To get that up, he had to do something that would make some cash. So he signed on this and thought, yep, this seems pretty straightforward. I can execute on this film just neat, clean, safe and tidy. So she, the screenwriter, Diane Thomas, wrote the screenplay in 79 and Zemeckis came on board, sees it and says, yep, that's great. He was developing Cocoon at the same time, but then essentially 20th Century Fox didn't like his take and they were pretty, scared, they were pretty apprehensive having seen the bombs of I want to hold your hand and use cars. So basically they said, you know what, we're pulling Cocoon from you, you're out. So Zemeckis goes, okay, I need something else, and he came on board. And that's basically how this film went ahead. But interestingly, this was always about Diane Thomas's take from a female perspective, a female gaze on someone who dreams of 
an adventure and then becomes the adventure. So it was basically her writing something that was fictional but also partly autobiographical. Yeah, right. There you go. Very interesting. Yeah. Indiana Jones, look, we all know the story there. It was a sequel. Uh, It was going to be something that was just trying to ride the coattails. I think what's interesting about this film is that they leaned in hard to the protagonist. The first film, the character isn't in the name, but here they've gone, yep, we value this guy. He is the brand. Let's make the film about him. Uh, What happened is that there was going to be this idea of a trilogy and George Lucas was always a key architect and there was this idea that perhaps they might share directing responsibilities or something like that. But basically, as we've seen, as history has told us, George Lucas kind of consistently shirked directing films after Star Wars until The Phantom Menace in the Star Wars prequels. So essentially he became a key author of the idea, of the screenplay or whatever, but handed over responsibilities to Spielberg to do the actual directing. You know, Gabe, it kind of reminds me of what could have been with the old, um, what's that, Tintin? You know, you know Tintin. The do you rec- the film Tintin or the 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 books? No, the adaptation. Remember that whole thing that was going to be this whole idea of a trilogy? Oh yeah, like and it was exactly this. Remember, it was exactly the same pitch. Like Spielberg was going to do one, and then Peter Jackson was going to yeah. do one, and who exact- else was going to do one? Like I, I, I think it was Joe Cornish. I don't know someone. Yeah, or that circle back to Spielberg, but Edgar Wright. I don't know Robert Zemeckis. Do you recall the pitch for that that trilogy was exactly the same, right? As Lucas, right? Okay, like. One, one, one will just sort of swap the roles and away it goes. And I sort of wonder why that is. Like why does Spielberg get involved in those relationships where he comes on board with, with these other creatives and other directors that kind of just revert to being just authors on the page as writers, but ultimately he kind of ends up directing, you know, those stories. Same with um, Jurassic Park, uh, similar sort of thing. He eventually handed off the reins to Joe Johnson, I think, for Jurassic Park 3. Mm-hmm. But there was also talk beforehand that perhaps he'd hand off the reins for the sequel but didn't. It's interesting. I, I guess many other directors just said, you know what, you're the god. You do this really, really well. Just stick with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I guess he they're doing another indie movie and who's doing that? Mangold. Yes, exactly. And that's quite, a, that's quite surprising that basically – Spielberg has, you know, handed the reins to someone else after like four movies. That's a big deal. But I guess it's not dissimilar to Lucas doing the same things by selling the whole franchise and handing off the seventh film onwards to J.J. Abrams and co. So, yeah, it happens. Um, Anywho, uh, in relation to Temple of Doom, um, Lucas was keen to avoid the uh, use of Nazis second time around and... Originally, actually, Spielberg wanted to bring back Marion Ravenwood, which I think is interesting because she actually returns in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but ultimately was decided to bring a new character. We'll get to this in a review, but I think this is quite interesting because there's a different parallel universe where they bring her back and she remains a constant force, which I think is really a missed opportunity. Um, Having said that, Outside the production of the film, obviously Spielberg got together with uh, Kate Capshaw romantically, so, you know, there's a whole different positive, so to speak, coming out of this. 
But yeah, I've always been bugged by that idea. Having never seen this film until recently, I was bugged by the idea of replacing the character of Marianne because I just thought she was so good in the first film. I had so much autonomy and stood alone. Anywho. And they really went in a different direction for the character with this one, didn't they, in terms of you saying <laughs> Marion has autonomy and is, you know, a bit of a badass. Wow, the choice they made with um, Willie. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, anywho, um, film came together. It was basically um, Lucas coming together, doing lots of transcripts as they used to do back in the day. The first draft was written in six weeks. And then basically after doing E.T., Spielberg said, uh, yep, let's go ahead. I don't want to lose the opportunity of um, Harrison Ford not committing and we've got to move really fast. So they did. And they basically did a second draft weeks after that and they were shooting pretty shortly afterwards. Wow. So that is the evolution of this film. It's pretty much in that era of saying, here's Jaws, here's Star Wars, First blockbusters of all time. What comes next? Sequel blockbusters, which means move fast, keep the cast, maintain the momentum. Sick. <laughs> all right, let's get to the reviews. Okay, so let's start with Romancing the Stone. Gabe, did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of a common premise that it shares with Temple of Doom? Uh, did I like it? It was all right. Uh What's kind of odd about this movie is that I must have watched this, how long ago did I watch it? I don't know, a week or two ago. And God damn, I had to read a synopsis of this thing to remind myself what happened in the second half because I just had zero recollection. I mean, I don't know if it's me getting older and my brain just falling apart, you know, the holes I've drilled in it due to alcohol abuse. I don't know, Ben, I don't know, but... Oh, I just couldn't recall what happened in the second half of this movie except for the word, what is it, Cartenia? Is that what they're, Cartenegia? Carter. I can't even remember the word that kept bouncing around in my head. This film is so unmemorable for me, which we'll get to. Oh, uh, yeah. like I can't even recall that phrase. I, I thought the first half or first quarter was real entertaining, like the setup and her getting to Columbia and then meeting... That rascal Jack Colton, played by Michael Douglas. But then, I don't know, the, the back half of it really doesn't capitalise on the sort of the, the, the setup. And it's just really flat and, yeah, forgettable. I mean, Kathleen Turner, incredible personality back then. Not to say she doesn't have an incredible personality now, but like, you know, really great screen presence. Michael Douglas. What a, you know, Rapscallion, Danny DeVito. But, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I had to reread the synopsis, Ben, to remind myself what even happened in the movie, which is not a great sign of a film sticking with you. Yeah, totally. I think what's fascinating about this film, and I did mention this earlier, but I'll throw it in now, is that Michael Douglas was a producer first. He basically hadn't built a career as an actor. He was living as a flatmate with Danny DeVito. Really? And... Yeah, these guys, yeah. Ha, that's awesome. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like a movie like Twins? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, Danny DeVito was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest um, that Michael Douglas won a producing Oscar for. See, what's fascinating is that they're living as flatmates together and Douglas, with all his good looks and the legacy of his father, 
Kirk Douglas, a famous actor, is worrying about his career at the time. And Danny DeVito, who's like 5'2", balding, not a leading man in terms of looks, is like, yeah, Michael, cry me a river. You'll be okay. So sharing a little apartment in New York, Douglas gets a break. I think it was like a theatre gig for about a year. But being a good, good guy, keeps paying rent back at the apartment so Danny DeVito isn't turfed out. So he's very loyal. He then gets, he buys the script. He pays something insane like $250,000 or something for this script, which is unheard of. So we're talking, you know, 1980s dollars, early 80s dollars. Everyone thinks he's insane, but he thinks, I need to try and progress my career and take a chance. He then realises that he's probably the best person for this role and that it gives him a chance to produce a good movie but also star in it. But at this point, he is a producer. He's known as a producer. He's not an actor. And then he basically throws a bone to his mate, his, his roommate, Danny DeVito. Wow. And then, yeah, which is quite remarkable, right? Yeah. And what I think is fascinating about this film is that if you watch this film now, you see who Douglas will become. You see the point where he goes, you know what? I know who I should be as a character, which is basically the same guy you see in Basic Instinct, in Wall Street. It's the guy that's good-looking, dangerous, a little bit sleazy. Nice. But not too sleazy. Like he's basically the anti-hero. And he's sometimes clearly the anti-hero as he is in Wall Street and other times he's the hero as he is in this movie. But, you know, he's complicated, right? He's got edge to him. Well, yeah, I mean, his his vibe was basically error-defining. Yeah. You know, that kind of like sleazy cool guy, you know. Yeah, and I think this film was where he just locked into that. He went, this is who I am and I'm just going to lean in hard to this particular character. And it works, you know, and it works. This film's fascinating to me because it gets so much right and so much wrong. And let me explain. This film is partly autobiographical in the sense that you have an author who becomes the heroine of her own fantasy. But I think the problem with this film is that it was made an era from the male gaze, which doesn't quite get it right. So... These films are similar but different. Indiana Jones is the hero in Temple of Doom, very clearly. And Kate Capshaw is the, you know, damsel in distress. There's squealing, there's midriff, there's cleavage, there's skirts, there's helplessness and so on. And she occasionally shows autonomy and so on, but that's occasional. In this film here, Kathleen Turner starts off as the damsel in distress She's a smart person, ostensibly, in her professional job, finds herself as a fish out of water, and then ends up being rescued by the swashbuckler Michael Douglas character. And on a few times, she shows initiative and shows him up, like that time when she discovers there's actually a faster way to cross the ravine on a vine, right? And he's totally oblivious. But there are other moments where she just sort of is very much helpless to him. And to me, the defining problem with this film or the bit where Zemeckis gets wrong is the bit where he and they actually reshot the scene. You know the star of the film where they show her look at a poster of a good looking hero mm. on her wall and basically showing her going, that's the sort of guy I wish I had. Mm-hmm. 
the Michael Douglas in fiction. Then she discovers the Michael, Jack- Jack- uh, Michael, Jack- Michael Jackson, <laughs> the Michael Douglas in reality. And do you remember that scene on that kind of green hill where it shows him looking at her with her leg kind of cocked out with the dress split right up to the upper thigh as she bends over picking flowers? And he basically gives this really sleazy look like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's like that look that Joey would give off friends. Like it's totally like him perving on her. And that's a great example where the film doesn't quite know which perspective it's meant to take because what should be happening is we should be seeing her looking at a real-life version of the guy she wrote about as the hero in her own stories. And that's the confusing part about this movie to me. Yeah, interesting, interesting. What do you think? Um, what do you think of the performances, just generally? Like before we get to like the best execution of the common premise, what do you think of? You've got Devito, Douglas, and Turner, all very early in their film careers. This launched all three careers through the stratosphere. How do you think they work? I mean, for me, Devito is giving us an earlier version of what he becomes. In fact, in fact, I think they all are. But what's your take? Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, particularly Devito and Douglas. Douglas, like you said. Um, I mean, Kathleen Turner hasn't quite hit that sort of um, what do you call it? Uh, the um, that. Oh no, I guess she has. Hold on. Well, she was in Body Heat before this, I think. I, I'm getting my I'm getting my dates all wrong. Yeah, yeah. I was like, she was in Body Heat, but she it, that was like a breakout role, and it wasn't actually a big role in relation to really stretching her to demonstrate her acting chops. No, you're right. I mean, I think that the those three are good in this in this movie as proto versions of them themselves. I think a bunch of the supporting cast is fairly forgettable. Like, I couldn't tell you who played the villain, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just, Ben, i got to say, I'm really struggling to remember much of this movie. That's really embarrassing to say, but God damn it. And you only saw it three days ago. Well, no, I must have seen it like ten days ago. <laughs> um, okay, let me help you out here. Okay, help me out here, Ben. I watched the last 20 minutes again because I can, I forgot about it. Now, admittedly. A few glasses of wine. <laughs> you know, I was a bit tired. But the last 20 minutes, I just can't recall. So I went back and watched it again, and then I recalled how ludicrous it was. So spoilers for the film, if you haven't seen this, which is now, you know, uh, how old? 36 years old. Do you remember that scene at the end where our villain gets the jewel and catches the jewel and the crocodile? Oh, the crocodile bites his hand off. And this is back in the days where I know that there were less ratings, less classification, so there was less scope. Something was either general for the whole audience, the whole family, or like rated R or X. Like there was no middle ground. And this film I think was like PG-13 in the States. I think it was PG in Australia. No, Ben, no. No, 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 no. You see. Or was it? You see, because of... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Specifically, I believe the MPAA created the PG-13 rating because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom 
was released with a PG rating. Because of the heart. Which is crazy to think of. Yeah, which is crazy to think of these days because for a PG movie, it's incredibly violent. Oh, incredibly. You know, for something that you would look at that rating and go, well, I guess I should take my six-year-old. Thanks, Dad. Well, the fact that the um, hand being thrust into the chest and pulling out the beating heart was there, to me, is incredibly more impactful than the melting face at the end of Raiders of the Last Ark. Don't you think? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, so the scene where the crocodile bites off the villain's hand in this particular film, it's pretty graphic, right? Like the blood's spurting out, you see his hand like a stump and whatever. Mm. And there's this ludicrous part where the crocodile's been off the hand with the stone in it. And there's this hilarious bit which feels like a parody where Michael Douglas grabs the crocodile's tail as the crocodile is trying to escape back into the river through a small gap on a bridge and is basically pulling it like a tug-of-war style to try and stop it from escaping to reclaim the jewel. Um, It's kind of surreal, right? It actually looks quite good in terms of visual effects, but it's kind of wacky. But why why do you think that's – I mean, that doesn't feel like it's out of step with the tone of the rest of the movie, which is, I guess, heightened. I I thought it was more violent. Ah. I didn't think the preceding scenes were as violent as that. To me, it felt like a soft romance novel in the vein of actually the fictional novels that Kathleen Turner's character actually wrote in the film. Mm, Gotcha. Gotcha. And maybe the point is to say that this is reality clashing with fantasy. Ah, yes. yes. Well, Tim, what do you think? Like, putting aside the crocodile, like, <laughs> does the film gel for you? Because that's a pretty eventful moment and you could argue is unforgettable, but we both forgot about it. Um, what what doesn't work, do you think, to just retain something for us? Is the fact that we're just at the wrong age, the wrong gender, maybe – the wrong era, that this film doesn't feel as groundbreaking as perhaps it did? Because this film was basically, I think, the female version of Raiders of the Lost Ark then. So it might have felt quite progressive comparatively and now it just comes across a bit, you know, static. Well, I guess what's lacking, and I think you basically said this earlier, that I guess I expected more scale. Like I just expected the movie to be bigger or something the set pieces to be bigger. I don't know. You know, like you said, the, the cover is Michael Douglas swinging on a vine as a bright sunlight, beams of sunlight, you know, shine out and he's hanging, Kathleen Turner is hanging on his arm. And, yeah, I don't know, in the end it's just, you know, a little bit podunk, you know, that it's just small scale. I, I expected more, which is a bit unfair, I guess, because, you know, that seems just a bit tough to say, but it just it just it just never feel like it escalated enough or something, you know. Uh, where's the sort of the epic swashbuckling adventure? Yeah, I agree. It's it's I think it has ambition, and we're both struggling, right, to try and define this film because I think it's very much a film of its time, and we've talked before about films like Commando Two, <laughs> no Commando, sorry and Rambo 2 and so on, and, like, can they outlive their era? Can they have a presence beyond their time? Mm. Star Wars, yes. Jaws, even with dodgy special effects and visual effects, yes. I think this film was at a transitional point, and I think the gender politics is particularly 
notable and dated in that regard. And in fact, you could pretty much say that Michael Douglas's career potentially. <laughs> don't you think? Is that fair to say? Yeah, nice, nice. Like, right? Like, I mean, even films like, I love Michael Douglas. I love his films. But like Falling Down, which I think is a great movie, that's a complicated film to rewatch in 2020. What do you think? Oh, oh, dude, 100%. Like, have you watched Black Rain recently? No. Like, that's the Morgan Freeman one? Don't get me wrong. I love that movie. But which one? Man. Which film is that? That's the one where uh, Michael Douglas goes to Japan. Um, to avenge the death of Andy Garcia. And it's one of those movies where, you know, it's totally of its time. Ridley Scott directed it. It's like super slick, but goddamn, has it, you know, just parts of it not aged well. Um, but I think you're absolutely onto something because when was the last time you were in any sort of, you know, sophisticated uh, uh, film conversation and someone brought up Romancing the Stone? It's just one of those movies that nobody talks about anymore. Okay, here's a controversial take. Is is Michael Stone? Michael Stone. <laughs> it's basically a Sharon Stone's uh, love child with Michael Douglas. Nice. Um, is Michael Douglas so zeitgeist he as an actor that every film he's made has dated? So let's 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 just do a quick little segue here, right? Okay. If you walk through it, right, falling down. Oh, the challenges of being middle class white male. Oh, my life is so hard. Right? Mm-hmm. Still, still, a good, still a good movie, but, uh, yep, I agree. I agree. I agree. Great movie. Great movie. Like, really great movie, but okay. hard to replay in 2020 for many reasons. Okay. Right? Would you say Fatal Attraction has dated, though? Fatal Attraction? Uh, mm. So it's a guy who, who has an affair and then she feels put out by him not... Uh, Yep, I, I would I would say I would say because the female protagonist who has a sexual appetite is defined as being psychotic. Yes. So the idea being that you can only be sexually active if you are an anomaly. Right. Or Michael Douglas, because he he fucked his way through the eighties and nineties <laughs> like a like a bull. That's right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now we get to let's go to Basic Instinct. Right. Uh-huh. Classic. Uh. Lesbians and murderers, like yep, 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 yep. Okay, like there's the element there that yep. Uh, if you are not heterosexual, you're anomaly again, and with that comes other forms of deviancy, including yep. murder. Yeah, and then I guess he did disclosure as well. God, he he's he's yeah, dis- often he's often called the victim of of promiscuous right. women, so, isn't he? So disclosure, he is the quote victim unquote of a powerful autonomous sexually independent, confident woman, uh-huh. and he's the victim. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Keep going. What else do we have? Uh... The American president. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the tide has turned on what we think of American presidents these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually lose sight of his career around 2000, which is like Wonder Boys. When's traffic? Traffic's around tw- 2000. 2000. So when Traffic came out, he was kind of like getting over the hill. He was playing a father figure. He wasn't playing a sexual hero. (laughs) Sexual hero. It's true, right? Sure. It's true. He's a 15-year run of playing a sleazy hero and then he's playing a dad, a dad and a congressman. And then it's been 20 years since then. Like what's he done without looking at IMDb now? 
just off the top of your head, and this is, again, I really like Michael Douglas as an actor. I'm just trying to place him now. It's been a 20 year gap. So Michelle Fife had a similar gap and she's come back with a bang, right? Mm. She had children and she unapologetically said, I went from the Catwoman, you know, latex outfit and I focused on family. And then she just came back. And I can't think what Michael Douglas has done the same way. Okay. I'll give you one movie that he ruled in Behind the Candelabra. Where he played Liberace ah, for Steven Soderbergh, and that was great performance, great movie, very good. And that film was at the cutting edge, where it was like one of the first films to go to HBO as a as a TV movie. Like it gave credibility to being a non theatrical release. Right. So right. what are we? Are we in twenty fourteen? I've lost. Uh, yeah, somewhere around the 20, 2013, 2014. But but apart from that, I mean, it's. I mean, I guess he's cashed in doing what. The ant, anti-man movies. Ah, uh, okay, that's his comeback. Yeah, so he yeah. can play. Yeah. You know, he he can play old. What do you call the old man who are fathery figures? No, what do you call that? Like people who father figures. Helps the hero. <laughs> no, no, like uh, wise sage-like characters. You know, he's looking. He, he got. Oh, you're talking about like sort of, um, you know, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, like mentors. He got old. He got old. Uh, he got old. He claimed that he got uh, mouth cancer from eating too much. <laughs> Jeez, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, anyway, and and yeah, now he's sort of in that age, sort of forgettable. But look, look, he was an absolute defining element of the sort of late eighties and nineties. He was the guy. He was the guy. All right. Perhaps you should leave this guy and go to the next guy and gal. What do you say? Okay. Sounds good. Let's uh, let's shift gears. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, I have left some. I've left some money on the table. Sorry, I've got to say. There is a point at seventy minutes where they dance. Do you recall this point? I do. Did you listen to the soundtrack and it sounded exactly like the Seinfeld theme? <laughs> yeah, very nice. I did. I did. That's very good. It is remarkable. Like, I don't know, you'd have to be calling the composer. If you're the composer of this movie, you'd be calling the composer of Seinfeld and saying, Ooh, it sounds pretty, pretty, pretty similar. Anyway. Yeah, right. Um, just had to drop that in. Let's jump to Temple of Doom. Okay, Gabe, what did you like? What grinded your gears? And did you do a better version of the same concept than Romance in the Stone? It's interesting, Ben, because I think in the last couple of years there's been a sort of critical reevaluation of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, people seem to be much more um, uh, eager or, or open about praising this movie, whereas back in the day it was sort of the, the indie movie that no one liked as much. Um, I've always liked this movie. I'm ahead of the curve in this. I think this is a fun movie. It's a good time. It's a great time. I mean, there's a few questionable elements to it that maybe have dated a little bit or something like that. But um, I like this movie a lot, you know. I think this is a, it's just a, it's just a, it's an all-round fun time. I like that it's a prequel. I like that it's actually set in a whole other 
you know. Uh, whoa, 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 what, what, what? Well, it's not in fact set in World War Two in Europe, Ben. This movie takes place one year before, and it's set in 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 a country called India. Sorry. Is this film actually a prequel? I'm quite sincere here. Yeah, dude, it's a prequel. No. It's set in um, 1935. I had no idea. Well, I mean, most of us realise this after seeing the movie for a second time. Um, Hang on, hang on, hang on, sorry. Okay. Oh, everything's just... So did you think he just dumped Marion and had just somehow wound up in a relationship with this? Yep. Wow. Okay, no. So, no, in fact, he dumps Willie Scott. (laughs) Um, between movies. So, okay, hang on. Why bother doing it as a prequel? I mean, this would have to be one of the first prequels, right? I mean, up until I thought that the Star Wars prequels were the first, you know, big prequels. Why would you bother? Because the time difference would probably only be a few years. Why not just set it one year after um, The Lost Ark? I don't know. And I do wonder what the first ever prequel was. In fact, I know what the first ever prequel was, Ben. It was The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Great movie. Um, George Lucas did not invent the prequel. Oh, okay. Um, But, um, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. And maybe it was because of Marion Ravenswood that they didn't want to do a straight sequel because then how are they going to plug her into this or give Indy a romantic subplot? So, you know, it's not like setting it a few years later you wouldn't have you know, British colonial control over India. You know, you could have set this movie all the way up to insert date here. I don't know. When did the British hand back um, India? I don't know, but I think for most mainstream audiences, they're not going to really quibble over those details. I mean, for example, in The Winter Soldier, the uh, Captain America film, there's a whole different Nazi-esque baddie called Hydra. So, you know. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you're right. Um, it's, uh, I suppose it's an interesting choice. And look, I'm surprised you didn't know that. I guess there's nothing really in the movie that – is there anything that really, I don't know, signposts it as a prequel apart from a, a date? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to watch both films back to back, but they would have to say, you know, with some sort of subtitle, set before the first movie. Um, I think most – Audiences back then would assume this is set chronologically after the first movie, just because at the time we weren't as sophisticated in relation to this whole idea of prequels, you know, like or jumping forward in time. We just expected sequels to carry on chronologically, you know, one month, one year, two years after the first film. In fact, I would argue that back then, if a movie came out three years after the first movie, most audiences would expect it to reflect a three-year gap in time. Wow. So you're saying that people would think the number of years that have passed between sequels is the amount of years that have actually passed for those characters. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's really funny. No, it's not It's not just funny. It's, like, amazingly correct. So. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let, let's work through Star Wars. So the first Star Wars happens. Okay. That, and there's a war in, amongst the stars. Yep. The first Star Wars, which was set in 1970-whatever, yep. Yep, the Star Wars. And then I think it was like four years later, out comes Empire Strikes Back. So between the end of the Star Wars and the Empire, yeah, where do we land? We land in basically first scene, they're, set, they're fighting the ice, 
I don't know. It could be one. I don't know when they're set. Do they put dates on Star Wars? Like in the opening scroll where they're like, you know, the Empire's blah, blah, content. Is it like, you know, star date? Yeah, I don't think they have but Jesus in there for a timeline like AD and BC. Like, Yeah, that's a good point. The opening shot of every Star Wars film says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It feels like to me when you watch those movies without any reference to dates, it feels like you're probably, what, six months to a year later? Like at the end of Star Wars, cutting to like they're doing a bit of a shoot 'em up you know, a bit of a search with those tontons. That feels like about six... Tontons? Yeah, that's like the uh, the camel on two legs. This may smell bad, kid, but it'll keep you warm. <sighs> I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Oh, that, that's what they're called, tontons. Yeah. How do you know this, Ben? Well, <laughs> how do you know so much about Temple of Doom? You know, uh, again, again, tomato, tomato, horses, courses. Right, fair. Anywho, let's circle back. Let's circle back. Look, look, I'll watch, what was the movie called? The Empire Strikes Back one day. So yeah, I'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll get to it. It's, sorry, it's The Empire Strikes Back. An Empire Strikes Back. No, uh, is it A Empire Strikes Back? An Empire Strikes Again. It's very confusing. Whatever it's called. Anyway, no one, no one, no one cares about those movies. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess I'm really interested, Ben, though, in you having watched this for the first time because it's one of those movies. I mean, all the Indiana Jones movies for me are those movies where I just have seen them so many times. Um. But you watching for this for the first time, I mean, what was it What was it like? I'm almost jealous. I'm jealous, Ben. I wish I could watch this for the first time again. Gabe, I was bored. No. You know that scene, there's this great scene oh. I always think of. Um, there's this Shame. great scene in Gattaca which Jude Law says to Ethan Hawke, I'm bored. I'm bored. Look, I was surprised how static this movie is and I'm stunned that – after the massive success of the first movie, set in multiple locations with a great sense of scale, just different vistas, like you're outrunning a boulder, you're taking off on a plane, all in the first five minutes. Wait, and wait, then- wait, wait, hold on, hold on. In the first five minutes of this, there's a big shootout in a club, they, they take off in a plane and then they jump out of the plane in an inflatable raft. Yeah, okay, that's where the antics begin. So hang on, hang on. The first film, you've got like planes and people with getting cut up by planes. And you've got like a staff <laughs> setting it, you know, revealing a secret. And then you've got like wow. faces melting and locations. And in the Ben, you have you have things revealing secrets in this. You have hearts being torn out of chests and people melting. In the third film, in the third film, you've got like you know trains with snakes, and you've got like tanks and like scaling tanks and. 
There's there's bugs in this one. There's 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 ceilings that are collapsing with spikes in them, and someone's got to put their hand in a in a hole full of bugs. It's got to. I thought you said just then there are feelings collapsing. I thought, oh, Gabe, yeah, with your with your. <laughs> With your high EQ just being, you're so empathetic, like all these feelings collapsing. Uh, oh, my God. Are you one of those people who puts their Myers-Briggs uh, thingy on their, like, Twitter profile? <laughs> I don't know what's worse. Here, just a little quick one. Oh, uh, you're so INTJ, Gabe, but I am so ENTJ. Which is worse, putting your Myers-Briggs thing on your Twitter profile or putting which sorting school hat thing from Harry Potter you would be? Which is worse? I actually have never read or watched Harry Potter. Stand by it. Won't apologise for it. So that comparison is lost on me. Myers-Briggs I am familiar with. I have been educated on and not a big fan of. But, yeah, I can get that reference. Anywho. Okay. Look. Ah, Gabe. I can't believe this, Ben. I can't believe you... Uh, yeah, is this like what mod- modern audiences are like? Are you, you you are now a modern audience when it came to this movie, you know. Look, 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 there are two versions of movies. Glancing up from your phone every 15 minutes to check in with the film that you're watching, <laughs> you know. All right, there are two versions of movies. There is a James Bond film which is, quote, globe-trotting, unquote, right. where basically to keep the audience invested, you basically have what is the flight jet or web jet or what? luxury escapes version of movies where you basically drop the character in a different location, which is exciting. It's Mexico during, um, what do you call that event? Uh, Born of the Dead or whatever. De- or- no, De La De Los Mortales or whatever it's called, the Day of the Dead. Yeah. Ben, yeah. Oh. Ben. It, it, I know colonialism is obviously bad, but colonial India in 1935 is a great interesting setting for a movie. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, I'm on board with the film. I'm on board with the film. First thing happens, the little inflatable boat goes off the river or it falls out of the plane, and they miraculously land in the river. It's very silly, very silly. Like it, you've got to really suspend belief. Like, Why do you? Are you killing no, no. me here? There is there is plausible physics or possible physics, and there's just shenanigans. We're, we're talking about a, I'm, we're talking about a movie series where God is real and the Ark exists. Yeah, uh, look, maybe it's my you know uh, repressed former Catholic background, but I can get aboard that. I can get I can get aboard the faith journey or aliens. I have trouble with three people in a inflatable boat jumping out of a plane. It doesn't flip over miraculously, and they fly through the air. Pretty poor CG or pretty poor um, visual effects. And they land on a river and then just descend down the river. It's a little bit silly. Ah, uh, man. Yeah. If my, can you hear my voice going high like this? That means I'm really <laughs> angry right now. <laughs> gotcha. And look, if okay. you listen to this podcast... So- just write in and abuse Ben. I mean, I'm going to post his address online, send him some actual, you know, some smear some shit in an envelope and post it to him. <laughs> I can't believe these things that you're saying, Ben. Yeah, yeah. just basically hire, like, is it Rabbit Tasker? Just deliver, like, a flaming bag of dog food on my front porch and I race outside and try and put it out and, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. 
I stamp out it out, stamp it out, and get poo all over my shoe. That's right. Well, yeah. tell me what else didn't you like about this movie, Ben? Oh, uh, okay. So then they land the place, and they it all happens at the same location. I just found it a little bit boring. Right. So you don't like um, short round? What about short round? Do you like short round? Yeah. Look. Okay. So I had a impression of short round when I was a kid. People did like impressions of short round. Now, this ooh. sounds like a slightly dicey uh, territory. <laughs> hey Ben, why don't you do uh, one of those impressions of um, short round for us yeah, right now? Yeah, Ben, why don't you like jump in two boots and all? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but they actually did it. I think endearingly. So, oh yeah, that type of uh, yeah. Impression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, look, you were kids. I feel like we're sort of like stepping to like Louis C.K. territory here. Like it might have been funny at a moment in time, and then we masturbating in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's that version, Ugh. or there is like versions of slurs where the joke teller should quote no better unquote. Anywho, okay. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Short Round had a bit of a reputation around the playground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People wouldn't imitate Short Round. Now, for the audience who haven't seen this movie, he has a distinct accent as a second uh, English language speaker. So I reckon back in 84 they were probably doing it. I actually don't think they were taking the piss. I think they were actually kind of doing it endearingly. Or maybe it was half and half. What are your thoughts? Uh, oh, look, I think um, we can look back on those uh, things we might have said in the playground in 1984 and, uh, you know, reassess uh, our attitudes towards them now and would I do a short round impersonation? No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I think it's just a case that, yeah. But I think he was presented as a as a, a Robin to, to Indy's Batman. Uh-huh. I don't think he's presented as being a clown. I think he's presented as being lovable. Yeah, short round's awesome. And if you want to follow that analogy through, Marion, not Marion, but Kate Capshaw's character is the Catwoman to Batman, right? Love, hate, antics, shenanigans. Wait, no, God, no. Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna extend to you an olive branch here, Ben. Oh, so, ge- so generous of you. Yes, thank you. Willie Scott sucks. She is so annoying. God damn. Ugh. Like there is what, so much squealing. What an unlikable character. I agree. I agree. Oh, all the time, she's just complaining, and I like. Look, I get it. She's a nightclub singer who's stuck now in the in the having to ride an elephant and having to you know eat monkey brain soup or whatever. But bloody hell, oh, just you you absolutely nailed it. Like coming off the back of a, a, a Marion Ravenswood, this is just a. Step down. I'm sorry, Mrs. Steven Spielberg, but just no good. No good. Do you think that they basically lucked into Marion's character in the first film and didn't actually recognise what they had? Because it's quite remarkable to get it right so well the first time in Raiders and then just get it so wrong the second time around. Like, it kind of astounds me. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, oh, well, Karen Allen is just a... Heaps better actress than Kate Capshaw because I don't think that's true. I mean, I think. The- yeah, I agree. I, I don't think Kate Capshaw is no, a bad no. actor at all. I think she actually does a with what she has, she does a great job. Yeah, I, I really think that the problem here is um, they've just written this character to be just so 
irritating. And I, I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be funny. And I guess some bits are kind of funny, but mostly it just grates so hard. So so that that to me is I will I will in this in this extension of an olive branch ban, that that is something that I would happily ding this movie uh, all right. on. Also, Harrison Ford looks a little bored sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess if uh, Michael Douglas was tapping into his on-screen persona for multiple films to come, what do you think? Is it arguable that Harrison Ford kind of, you know, lent into that kind of, you know, bored, um, muted character that made him famous in films right through to our most recent podcast, Air Force One, where he just is so emotionally repressed on screen. I mean, apart from the couple of Peter Weir movies he did, I'd say he essentially just plays Harrison Ford in everything. And, I mean, that's great. That's why he's a movie star. But Yeah, I think most of these actors play versions of themselves and if you hear them speak in interviews, it feels like they're just basically doing that version. So Tom Cruise, gun-ho, sports, danger. <laughs> sports. <laughs> Um, Michael Douglas, sleazy, mm. anti-hero. Um, Harrison Ford, um, curmudgeonly. Um, finger pointer. <laughs> finger pointer, that's right. Um, um, yeah. Any final words to wrap up this review on Temple of Doom? I, look, I like it. I like it a lot. All right. So basically Gabe has a, you know, a review of a six-year-old and uh, that's right. <laughs> it's pretty good. All right, uh, let's get to our combined review. Any notable similarities, like any coincidence of ripoffs? I mean, obviously, both films have alligators at the end, which is kind of quite bizarre. Like, I actually, in my memory, kind of confused both scenes where people are torn apart by alligators. Anything else? What sort of a Colombian city has alligators just in the sewer that just anyone, that really, I mean, is that true? Is that real? No. Just like at any point someone could just fall through a sewer grate and just be devoured by a whole bunch of alligators? Yeah, fair to say they weren't as sophisticated in their understanding and knowledge of areas outside the US of O. Mm. Um, Which film has aged better? Well, I think we answered that when we said when was the last time anyone talks about the romancing of the stone. Okay. Uh, any plot holes or missed opportunities? Like what could the filmmakers have done better with this same high concept? Well, I mean, what do you think for romancing the stone? I think we've we've, we've talked about that. I think it's pretty much keeping it focused on the female gaze would have been yeah. more consistent and progressive. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, Temple of Doom, uh, again, back to gender politics. Um, had a, yeah, true. a stronger female protagonist or uh, uh, a stronger female co-lead. True, true, true. All right, let's jump to trivia, a bit of behind the scenes. All right, which are we starting with, Ben? Let's start with Romance in the Stone. Did you, uh, in your deep dive, discover anything of any note? Hmm. So you mentioned the dancing scene before, Ben, the Seinfeld-themed scored dancing scene. (laughs) Apparently, Apparently, the legend goes, Michael Douglas didn't even know he was being filmed. He just thought he and Kathleen Turner were having a nice little dance surrounded by the extras. Uh, reading this story, that sounds like complete bullshit to me. I agree. Like, who keeps the cameras rolling that, and lit? And, that doesn't sound real at all. And wasn't it cut between, like, two or three camera angles? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> what a load of shit. It sort of feels like a pre-apology for his bad dancing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
Uh, do you recall the dancing in Basic Instinct? You know, it wasn't great. <laughs> no, I just recall those like plunging V neckline sort of jumpers, uh, indoor sweaters he wears without a shirt underneath. Oh, That's right. Yeah, so exactly. Great. Yeah. Um, Distracting. Uh, did you know, Ben? Did you know that because of the number of kidnappings that were actually happening in Colombia, they had to shoot the movie in Mexico. Ah, interesting. Okay. Okay. Actually, I didn't realise it was actually a third instalment called The Crimson Eagle that went into development but was actually never made. I mean, I thought these two films back-to-back would make enough cash to justify it, but apparently that one, Jack and Joan, along with their two children, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, wacky family shenanigans. Ugh. They go to Thailand and are blackmailed into stealing a precious statue. Yeah, it sucks when they bring in uh, kids into movies like this. The Mummy Part 3, I'm looking at you. Spy Kids. Wait, that, they're just kids' movies. Yeah, but anyway. To me, that's like a sequel. It's like basically like a sequel to a James Bond movie. Right. Okay, okay. Uh, did you know, Ben? Did you know that during shooting, Michael Douglas was bitten on the hand by a venomous snake, and Danny DeVito leaped into action and sucked the venom out? Is that bullshit? No way. Well, this is a story apparently that Michael Douglas uh, told late uh, on Late Night with Seth Meyers or something. But, I mean, again, that sounds like bullshit to me. Yeah, Telly does. It. Telly sounds like basically everyone's feeling good about themselves. He's like they're flatmates, they're paying the rent for each other. Everyone's getting a leg up from this movie. Everyone's doing pretty well and we all laugh and slap each other on the back because we feel pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. How about let's jump across to Temple of Doom. So, you know, interesting development. Uh, Any highlights there that you read about at all? Um, I mean, this film obviously was trying to really cash in on the first film. Um, I didn't realise actually, you know that chamber sequence with the bugs? Mm. Kate Capshaw was actually covered with over 2,000 insects. <laughs> like, Well, yeah, I mean. Only then would they actually use real insects. Now it'd be CGI. But then they went for the real McCoy. I know, that's awesome. God, filmmaking used to be cool. <laughs> um, Kate Capshaw actually, in retrospect, has actually been very critical of her own character and saying that Willie was not much more than a dumb, screaming blonde. So there you go. She recognised you know, in retrospect, and talking about her, the film made by her husband of like, you know, almost 40 years, that she was a pretty prone character. Yeah, totally. I mean, why didn't anyone bring it up at the time? Exactly. Um, yeah, I think on that, I mean, didn't Spielberg himself even say that he didn't enjoy this film as much as the others, but at least he met his future wife. Kate Capshaw is his future wife. I didn't realise that. Interesting. Um, anything else? I will say about IMDb trivia generally, God, there's a lot of people just putting up a lot of bullshit on there these days. Totally. Uh, back in the day, I did used to like reading it, but now you just get people just putting up any old rubbish. Like dead set, get this, on the, the Romancing the Stone trivia page, there's a, a trivia note that only nine of 24 people have even found interesting, but it says this. Fans have been rallying for some time for the next instalment, The Crimson Eagle, to be made. That or a Romancing the Stone Raiders of the Lost Ark crossover. 
I mean, in what universe do you really actually think Indiana Jones movies would do a crossover with Romancing the Stones movies? <laughs> That's right. Well, I guess we're in a world now where there's a possibility of the Fast and Furious crossing over with um, John Wick. So I guess it's- Yeah, but those are two good fran- – like, I mean, yeah. I suppose maybe at the time Romancing the Stone was, was a hot franchise, but, you know – you know, yeah, that just seems yeah. like a low. I agree. I agree. You can't trust trivia. All right, let's ch- jump to casting. What should have couldas? So the big one is really *Romancing the Stone*, where Michael Douglas originally offered the role of Joan Allen or Joan, Joan Allen <laughs> of Joan to Deborah Winger. Okay, and they actually met at a Mexican restaurant to discuss it. But according to Douglas, she ended up biting him. So she didn't get the part. Wait, wait, she what? Biting him. Like you heard that correctly. That's it. Like that's that's all it says at IMDb. It just says she ended up biting him, full stop or period, she didn't get the part. <laughs> wow, that's weird. I mean, I read that Sylvester Stallone turned down the role of, of Jack Colton so he could star in Rhinestone, uh, which he and all of us have come to regret. <laughs> um, were there any other casting what it should have could as way over at Temple of Doom? Hmm. Not not that I know of any. Do you know of any? Uh, well, apparently Lawrence Kazdan was unavailable because he was working on the big chill. So he, he couldn't partake and that's how Spielberg came on board. So that's, you know, interesting to see who could have ended up behind the camera. Yeah, right. Well... Uh, wait, Lawrence Kasdan was going to direct? Well, yeah. No, right, surely. Yeah, no, uh, I guess, yeah. Oh, sorry, you're right. You are correct, right, yes. Ha, listen to this, though. I read a review of this movie written by Lawrence Kasdan and he said he thought it was horrible. It's so mean. There's just nothing pleasant about it. It's an ugly, chaotic period of Lucas and Spielberg's lives and the movie is mean-spirited. Wow, jeez. Jeez, don't hold back, Larry Kazdan. Yeah, well, well, they got together to write again for the future, so it all worked out in the end. Uh, the only other one interesting to circle back to the stone was apparently Clint Eastwood, Jack Nicholson and Christopher Reeve turned down the role of Jack T. Colton before Michael Douglas accepted the part, which is weird because when it says he accepted, he actually was the producer. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, right. hey, Michael, do you want to do the film? Michael answers to himself. Yes, I would like to be the star of this movie. Thank you. Uh, I mean, maybe the the studio sort of said to him, hey, look, you might be able to do it, but first these other blokes have got to turn it down. Yeah, possibly. It makes sense. Okay. Let's move on to Spot the Aussie. I didn't spot any in either film. Did you? I did not. Okay. Let's jump to Big Trouble and Little Production. I couldn't find any sort of bad stories at all. How about yourself? No, no, apart from people retrospectively hating Temple of Doom and, oh, I mean, didn't Harrison Ford hurt his back? Like he herniated a disc, but beyond that. That was it. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing that I. Okay. Uh, I couldn't find anything either in relation to, you know, crazy marketing methodology, madness and missteps. So let's jump to the box office. Okay. Which movie, Gabe, do you predict was the box office champ? I'm going to guess that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom made more money than Romancing the Stone. But despite no one giving much of a shit about it these days, I bet Romancing the Stone was quite the hit. Yeah, okay. So you're right and you're right. So 
Romance the Stone was made for only $10 million, even with inflation. What? Yeah. Wow. We've talked about this before, about some of those Stallone movies like Commando or right. Rambo 2. Like, St- they got a lot of bang for their buck. C- Commando's Schwarzenegger, man. Well, you know, those guys. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> there were, the money was on screen. Uh, so $10 million. It did pretty well, actually. It made uh, $76.5 million domestically. Look, that's a smash, right? Yeah. We weirdly only did ten million internationally and eighty-six and a half all up worldwide. Which makes me think you and I perhaps saw this on video in the video store so much because it made its money and did you know, on those rentals, but didn't get that same huge release it did originally in the States. Mm. All right. So jumping over to indie. Okay. So indie had a budget of $28 million. Mm-hmm. It made $180 million domestically, which is huge back then, plus $153 internationally for a grand total of $333 million worldwide. That's a hit. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. That's a hit. That's a hit. That's a hit. All right, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Have a guess, Gabe, which movie impressed the critics the most? Uh, just on a head-to-head basis, I'm going to say that Romancing the Stone actually got better reviews than Temple of Doom. Interesting. Okay. Romancing does 85% versus Temple, which does 84%. Wow. Romancing squeaked it out. Pipped at the post. How, how about audiences? Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to say Temple of Doom ahead of Romancing the Stone. Yeah, you nailed it. 69% of audiences loved Romancing, but 81% loved Temple of Doom. There you go. Okay, let's go to the awards. Have we got a song yet? Like, do, 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 do. Are you just doing the Seinfeld yeah, song? that's right. Um, this is where Sam can insert that music from that sexy dancing scene from uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah, I've got no. I mean, we, we've tried. We've tried our little beats. We've tried drum roll. We've tried fireworks. I'm kind of. I'm running low on ideas as to how to really kind of like announce this session of the podcast. Just like, just like a low tone, a, a brown sound. <laughs> a brown sound. So that famous sound allegedly that causes. Um, yeah, drop your guts. Uh, other soldiers just to, just to like, yeah, nice. Okay. Did you just soil yourself? Maybe. <laughs> it did sound a little wet, didn't it? Right at the end. Ooh. <laughs> Let's have a smell, all right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, best title. Well, it's pretty, look, uh, pretty good titles, both of them. I like the idea of saying this is our protagonist now going forward, Indiana Jones and insert something. I like that kind of classic vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I like that they waited to the sequel to do this. I mean, I know they've sort of tried to retroactively uh, call Raiders of the Lost Ark now Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, if you go to Netflix or whatever, they do that. Too many movies now. Too many movies now, Ben, call their first one by the name as if they're already iconic. 
Like Example. Well, I don't actually want to rag on it because I love John Wick, but John Wick or, you know. Um, Sorry, hang on. The first John Wick was called John Wick. Yeah, I know. I, I don't like it when they call, like what I'm saying is that you can't. Oh, so you don't like when they get it right the first time. You like when they actually you, course correct you gotta own, you gotta, you gotta, you got to know that your character is an icon before you can call your movie after him. It's preemptive otherwise. Okay, so it's like uh, Rambo. You know, unless you're a a movie based on a real person, you know, Ed Wood, or a pre-existing property, you know, Dick Tracy. Look, I think you're onto something here. Like John Carter of Mars, rather than say John Carter of Mars and make it exciting with the Mars bit, they went, let's call it John Carter. (laughs) But they hadn't actually established John Carter as being just this iconic hero that we love. Yeah, exactly. It's like you call your sequel to Michael Clayton, Michael Clayton. Call your first one Bagman. That's terrible. (laughs) I actually think that Michael Clayton is an amazing film and the only thing wrong with that film is the title of the movie. And I'm saying that by saying that film is so incredible, I think it did well in spite of the title of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Big call, I know, but that to follow your theory th- through, that's where you land. Yeah, that's right. And look, I'm I'm probably being a little bit a little bit silly with it, but I oh, see so you prefer to call Michael Clayton like Bagman lawyer. <laughs> well, I mean, I would just go with Bagman but uh, well, the Lincoln lawyer, right? The Lincoln lawyer. They call it the Lincoln lawyer, not the name of the character played by Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, I mean, some movies, the occasional movie, just comes out iconic straight from the gate, like Billy Madison. The name is in the title. The character is an icon. That's fine. But you know, uh, Little Nicky. <laughs> <laughs> Less so, exactly. You know, uh, Big Daddy. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it look, it's pr- Huey Halloween. Huey Great Halloween. Film. Great film. I think. I look. I did. You know. I. Who knows, Ben? It would. Uh, maybe I'm totally wrong. Jerry Maguire. I mean, sometimes they just get it right. Sometimes they just get it right. But Bridget Jones. Diary. Her full name was actually Bridget Jones Diary. Not many okay. people know that it's not actually about a diary. Her surname is Diary. Going to say, one of the greatest offences of the time that just really, really gave me the shits was posters and cinemas spelling it Bridget Jones apostrophe S. Oh, that really got me. Wait, you mean the additional S? Yep. So not just yep. Brit- like yep. J-O-N-E-S apostrophe. So as Ben Phelps who learnt, you know, that the apostrophe goes after the S for the ownership, so Ben Phelps's shoes goes Phelps, then the apostrophe, then shoes, it was doing the apostrophe and the S on the S. It was a hat on a hat, an S on an S. Really? Well, yep. It really got- gave me the grammatical... Bejeebies. Really? Because uh, a little-known author called Stephen King would like to send a big F you to you, Ben, because I think he believes you should always end uh, a possessive with a apostrophe S regardless of whether the word ends in an S or not. So what's his, what's his example? So he would say that Bridget Jones apostrophe S diary is the correct way to do it. But hang on, isn't he basically fighting like 95% of... Grammatical experts. 
Well, 95% of grammatical experts probably haven't wrote no Stephen King book or a successful Stephen King. So those nerd burgers can F off and I'm going to listen to the man. So I love how you use like the wrote no, like very clever, very clever. Credit where credit is due. Yeah. Like that was that. That was an S on an S on an S. Well played, sir. Thank you. All right. Let's uh, get back to some, put some stink in the stank. So <laughs> let's go to best poster. Okay. So we're going off the IMDb. We're going yeah. off the IMDb posters, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is a Drew Struzan classic. I'm assuming it's Drew Struzan, but. And it's big old head of Harrison Ford. And then on his right shoulder is the bloke holding the flaming heart and then all kinds of sword fighting malarkey going on. And then over on his left shoulder, there's Willie Scott and below her, there's Short Round and below them there's some elephants. It says action, adventure, red and blue. It's got everything. Uh, weirdly, Indy's face, he's looking kind of unimpressed. I don't know, his expression's kind of a bit odd, but okay. Romancing the stone, as you described, Ben. Michael Douglas, big grin on his face. Kathleen Turner hanging on his back as they swing on a vine across some form of, what do you call it, a chasm? Yeah, a chasm, a valley chasm. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, oh, no, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones' tagline, just while we're here, says, if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. Okay, so what's your favourite? That's shots fired. (laughs) Uh, I think they're both pretty good posters, but... Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom wins for me because it actually delivers on what's in the movie. Yeah, I'm going for Romance in the Stone. Ooh. I think that's actually got a sense of more drama than the, wow. floating, the floating big heads. Wow. It doesn't deliver on the movie, but I think it's a better poster. Wow, okay. So it's a piece of artwork. Uh, yeah, exactly. All right, so it's a dead rubber. Yeah. Let's move to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award named after American indie actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who got their big break in these twin movies? Starting with? <laughs> Romance in the Stone. <laughs> okay. Well, didn't you not say that Danny DeVito? I like after basically 50 episodes of this, you need like that little, <laughs> you know. Like, well, usually you say yeah. starting with. So, okay. you know. All right. Mm. All right. Uh, well, didn't you say Danny DeVito got a sort of big, a big step up? You know, he'd been in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'd say Danny. Okay. Or oh, Danny. Mr. DeVito to you. <laughs> How about Temple? Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Who got a big break? Kate Capshaw? I don't know. What, what had she done before this? I don't know much about the career of... She hadn't done much and then when she hooked up with Spielberg, she didn't do much afterwards and sort of right, focused okay. on the family. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, Short Round got a big break but didn't, cap, didn't capitalise. So I've got an award for him later on. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, Kate Capshaw, just looking at her IMDb, hadn't been in much before Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, so. All right, so Kate and Danny. Wow. I'd say Danny. Okay. Okay. The Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them. So starting with romancing, any tiny roles there? I mean, I didn't re- I mean, Holland Taylor, who played Gloria, Mm-hmm. Is there, but she did a career before, but it's funny seeing her again. So she sort of falls between a few awards. Um, anyone in particular? I mean, no. 
Okay. How no, about no one? No one Temple? really. No. See, these not- films are set in different countries. We've got like three Americans dropped in a landscape with other nationalities. So it kind of makes sense logically that those supporting characters didn't get an opportunity afterwards. Well, I mean, the other thing is that I'm, you know, I know a little bit about movies, but unfortunately I don't know a huge amount, say, about, I don't know, Indian cinema and if, you know, Roshan Seth had gone on to or been in, you know, was this his big break? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, we're looking you know? at totally through the lens of, like, mm. you know, uh, Hollywood culture. And you're yeah. right, like... How many times does, say, Hollywood actually hire an Indian or Chinese or Hong Kong actor and they're huge in their own country but they play a supporting role in Transformers or a Mission Impossible movie or something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Amrish Puri who played, um, um, what's the character's name? Uh, Bloody uh, Mola Ram. I think he was in quite a lot of stuff, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, I can't place it, but I think you're right. Okay, well, we've got to put our finger on a winner, so who do we finger? I'm going to finger Mola Ram. <laughs> okay, well done. All right, the Tommy Lee Jones show still a reward, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. Who sold the show, Gabe, despite being in a small or poorly written role? Starting with The Stone. Uh, mm, did anyone? I mean, do you? Is there anyone here that you think? I thought Danny DeVito saw the show. I thought he was. Well, he did a lot. He did okay. a lot with a little. Like this is like this is where you see where his career goes, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but yeah, no one else in that film. Jumping to Temple of Doom. Uh, no, not Kate Capshaw. Not Short Round. Not the little prince. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe at a pitch the crocodiles at the end, but I'm really, I'm really. Wait, wait, are you saying the crocodiles at the end stole the show, dude? Going back to Mola Ram, who we just fingered, he's great. I love that guy in this. Okay, <laughs> you know who's also awesome in this, actually, and particularly because it's a small or something role. Rick Young, who plays um, the. The bad guy in the Hong Kong sequence. Ah, who, yes. Once you've recognised his head, man, he turns up in heaps of stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, he's like one of those blokes who's got more than 100 credits on um, uh, IMDb and often in just small roles, like he'll just turn up as like, you know, some Chinese gangster one and done scene in something like, uh, what did I see him in recently? Uh, American Gangster, you know. Uh, uh, but, man, he rules. He's great. Okay, well, name, name your guy. Rick Young. Rick it is. All right, Rick, we have an award waiting for you. Okay, moving on to the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the guy who unfortunately squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Gabe, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in either of these movies? Hmm. I'd say Kate Capshaw in Temple, but for good reason. Mm-hmm. And also perhaps Short Round? How about you? I think both of those are pretty good um, pretty good nominees. Uh, I'd say short round. I feel like there was a missed opportunity, but maybe he was just too pigeonholed. Uh, what about William Hayek, 
the writer of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, who after writing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom went on to write nothing that I've ever heard of. Ah, interesting. A bunch of TV movies. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. I'm I'm keen to go with that one mm-hmm. unless you can convince me otherwise. Uh, do you want me to try? I mean, we could also say <laughs> Gloria Katz, who also wrote Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom, went on to write not a lot of much and just right. a similar amount of TV movies, presumably because she actually looks like she, re- she wrote them with William Hoek. Okay, so the indie writers get the award. Okay, done. The winner, winner, chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies, either in front or behind the camera, starting with romancing? Well, look, I think both of these two movies, the the directors went on to some amount of you know critical and commercial success. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think they're both. I mean, this basically gives the keys to the kingdom to Zemeckis to do Back to the Future, which is huge. That's right. Like you um, said, yeah. I'd say, I'd say it's it's a bigger deal for him mm. than it is for Spielberg. So I'd, I'd oh, give it to absolutely. Zemeckis. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Give it to Bob. Done. All right. Best dialogue award. So, what's your favorite quote, Gabe? Starting with De Stone. How about Jack Colton's line? What did you do? Wake up this morning and say, today I'm going to ruin a man's life. That feels very of the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you were watching it, did you think to yourself, wow, that's a that's a line I'll never forget? Yeah. You know? no, no, I'm just I'm hunting for answers no. for this question, but nothing It's not so. like, you know, Scarface, that line that you always uh, quote, your womb is so polluted. You know, that's the line that sticks with you. Forever. Yeah, that's for every Whereas, Saturday morning. You're the best time I've ever had. I've never been anyone's best time. It's a nice line of dialogue, but it's not like I'm walking around saying it. I do like there is a line that Jack Colton says, which is, now I ain't cheap, but I can be had. That kind of feels like a summary on his career after that. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Um, jumping over to Indy. Um, I mean, chilled monkey brains. I know it's just a description of the thing, but goddamn, when they're like chilled monkey brains, that always, uh, that always, I always remembered that. All right, what else? Given that this film lived with you for so long, you're probably in a better position to be able to comment on what was most memorable with you, you know, playing with the kids in the playground and like pretending to be indie as you're swinging on the monkey bars. Um. I mean, there's a lot of great low-key dialogue. You know, um, I like when Indy drinks the poison and then Willie's like, what's that? And the bad guy goes, antidote. And Indy Jones says, the what? And he's like, the poison you just drank. But, you know, again, uh, is it uh Good screenwriting but not really a quip to repeat. Yeah. Yeah, lots of short rounds lines I really like, but um, I, I, I'm afraid I'd do them can rather you do, to, Can you do no, them? We've, we've been there. We've done that. 
Okay, maybe Sam could insert. Yeah, cut one in. A, a cut in a short man line or two here. <laughs> like this one. I love this one. Hey, Dr. Joe, no time for love. We got company. <laughs> Very good, and I love uh, this one. Hey, lady, you call him Dr. Joe. My professional name. <laughs> Nailed it. All right. Uh, well, I guess we're looking at best dialogue goes to Temple by a smidge. Yes, by a smidge. Okay, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, starting with romancing. Hmm. Well, I mean, Michael Douglas is doing a little bit of scenery chewing. Yeah, I think this is this is the beginning of his journey as we discussed. So I'd say he's chewing on the cud pretty hard. How about Temple? Chewing the cud. That's what he called it. Um, <laughs> uh, Temple, who? Uh, Kate Capshaw's oh, yeah. doing probably as directed, but, you know, it's painfully, yeah. Yeah. She wins. She wins. It is nice that she wins an acting award for this role. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Kate. We regret to inform you. Despite being a great actor, unfortunately, you might score this award. Okay. The Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Um, I don't think anyone in romancing was slumming it for the cash. And same with Temple. How about you? I mean, I guess Temple's a sequel, so, you know, probably people got paid to come back, but... Well, you mentioned before that Harrison was looking a little bit sleepy. You know, this is the beginning of his hibernation for 20 years. Mm. Well, he did this right after Blade Runner, I think a movie where he looks very sleepy. Yeah, okay. Maybe Harrison. Okay. All right, moving on to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the incredible actor who played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Gabe, which actor triggered, hey, it's that guy? Okay, well, romancing the stone. When Holland Taylor turned up, I was like, hey, it's Holland Taylor. I remember her from some movies. Who else? What's she been What's she been in again? She she, she was a regular in the, the TV series The Practice. Did you ever watch that? The Practice from the late 90s? Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh She's in tons of stuff, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. 101 of episodes of Two and a Half Men. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I thought you would have, you you know, as you run the Two and a Half Men fan website, you know, you would have been all over that one. But Yeah, I know. It just escaped me. I'm sorry. I'm too focused on the leads. Uh, all right. Uh, how about Temple? Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've mentioned before Rick Young. Yep. You know, Uh uh, is this an award that you could say, hey, Dan Aykroyd was in this movie? Is he? Yeah, he turns up in like a little cameo. No. He's in it for about 20 seconds. No, that's more like a blinking missed them. I think we've missed the award. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, oh, we missed the, Can we retrospectively hand it out? No, it doesn't matter. Move on. Move on. We don't well, hang on. Here. We're like hang sharks. On. When La La Land won, on stage they did a quick little, you know, Recalibration and Moonlight one, like there's still time. If you want to give it to Dan Aykroyd, there's still a moment. So like recount. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the error of the recount. No, oh. I don't. Let's move along. Okay, let's move on. So we'll give I it mean- to Rick Yun. Yeah. Okay. Sure. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. So in romancing, uh, again, it's tricky. Um, I don't know, Gabe. Uh, Look, I wish Danny DeVito was cast in everything. I love that guy so much. Well, he has been in like nine, 10, 11 seasons of Sunny in Philadelphia. Bro, 
14 or 15 seasons. Really? That many? Yeah. Uh, I think they're shooting the 15th season now. And look, if I get an opportunity to, I'm going to. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Absolutely rules. It's probably the greatest sitcom of all time. I've never, the longest never running seen sitcom. it. Oh, dude, it is so good. I never, I never hear anyone talk about it. Like I never hear a podcast review. Well, okay, okay. But I reckon here in Australia people don't talk about it because it's hard to see in Australia. It's not, it's not like it ever played on free-to-air TV. You know, it's not like it was on Channel 9 or Channel 7 or whatever. And So why do you think he did it? Why do you think Danny DeVito just parked 15 years in TV? Because it's the best show and, he, and Danny DeVito is a man of impeccable taste. Okay. All right. I might actually commit to watching the first season. Dumb. No, just start at season two because that's when Danny DeVito turns up. Season one, okay, don't get me wrong, but season two, start there. Oh, boy, you're in for a treat, okay. Ben. Again, I can't wait. as I said about Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, you watching that for the first time and me being jealous, I wish I could watch all of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia again for the first time. I just finished uh, Shit's Creek after starting to watch it three times, uh, fourth time the charm. Quite enjoyed the whole thing. Very good. Took a while to get into. Okay. Uh, who's our winner? I have, I've forgotten what the award is again. I always do this. Uh, uh, Dory Lindo? Sorry, Danny DeVito. Okay. Should be more. Okay. The Memphis Reigns Award, uh, named after the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Or who steals the stone? <laughs> That's hard. You, double guns, you. Look, uh, they're all pretty boring. Jack Colton, Joe Wait, wait, wait. Warner. No, wait. What? What? No, come on. I mean, look, they're not the best, but Joan Wilder, I mean. Like she basically like lets her hair out and becomes Well, that's a right, bit- Ben. You as a writer, I know you've always liked the idea of if you've got a character who's a tough guy, you call him like Fred Strong Guy. And if he's a writer, I call him like Neville Quill. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So Joan Wilder, I thought that would be right up your alley. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, like it's. A little bit on the nose, but okay. Okay. How about Temple? Well, Indiana Jones. Uh, yeah, okay. I think you're right. <laughs> yes. Short Round? Uh, that seems like it's probably his nickname. I'm not sure if his first name is actually Short and his surname okay. is Round. But How about Willie Scott? Know. Interesting to go for the uh, gender non-specific name. Willie? Yeah. What's Willie. that about? I don't know. I'm going I'm I'm to put her down myself, actually. Okay. Well... All right. I'm, I'm going to vote for Indiana Jones. All right, dead rubber, we're drawn. It's the dog's name. Okay, the Die Hard Award, uh, named after the influence of Die Hard in inspiring a subgenre. So imitation is the ultimate flattery. Did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones, starting with romancing? I mean, neither of these movies invented the swashbuckling genre, did they? The... Oh, if anything, I think they were basically like a flashback. Yeah, I mean, I think I think wasn't Indiana Jones conceived by Lucas as a sort of almost tribute to those serials he liked as a as a kid. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I so yeah, I didn't. I didn't think they. I think they basically were a reinvention of the old, and I don't think they've actually been the inspiration for the new. Well, but which, okay, but but what about the sort of sequelizing franchise thing? 
you know, which is very common now. You know, you want every movie to be part of some sort of yeah, okay, I'll give you that sequel yep. franchise shared universe. Thing. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yep. I mean, the fact that they put Indy in the name basically said this Confident. is our our lead character, and he will be what it, what was Rocky or Rambo. Yep, I I agree. I'd say they were part of a, that kind of eighties era, which was like. Let's cash in in the blockbuster, and this one lead character will be the thread of different stories. All right, it's the time of the podcast for the milking the speed cow dry award, named after the infamous sequel. The sequel? What's a sequel? It's like a sequel. It's a spoken word sequel. <laughs> it's a radio play sequel. <laughs> the sequel, Speed Two, which took the high stakes. Can you? actually uh, finish this sentence, Gabe, after almost 50 uh, episodes. It took the high-stakes story of a man on a bus that can't go below 50 kilometres miles per hour and transported it to a story of a different man with a sadder face stuck on a boat with Willem Dafoe, which boat goes slow. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Romance in the Stone or Temple of Doom. Now, you know, they're both very similar in their premise. They're both about a swashbuckling adventurer and a damsel out of her depth who find themselves in a love-hate relationship as they search for a valuable stone. So with that in common, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it to a studio executive? Well, do we ignore the fact that both of these movies have had sequels made to them? Yeah, I sort of feel like you'd almost take this and make it a, okay, how's this? A reboot. Uh, so, I mean. A female version like Ghostbusters. <laughs> well, I think, I think to, be, to be fair and to take this uh, thing a little bit seriously, you know, I, as is my way, I'm sick of being like the, the jokey jokester, um, you could reboot Romancing the Stone and I don't think people would particularly mind. I don't think it's held up and heralded as some kind of unimpeachable classic. I mean, I'd be a little careful rebooting Indiana Jones with a new actor as Indy, but, I mean, don't you think we could do a reboot of Romancing the Stone where perhaps we could make um, some of those choices a little sharper? Well, record scratch, Sam, insert here, but they did actually have the plan, much like Mission Impossible, to then hand over to Jeremy, what's his name? Renner. Renner. That was the plan which they abandoned. There was the plan to hand it to the character of Munt. M- Mutt. In Kingdom. Mutt. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they didn't. But That's that was- a lie. They were never going to go like, well, Indiana Jones 5 is about Shia LaBeouf. I love Shia LaBeouf so much. But that was all horse shit. Well, okay. Look, if you did a re- Okay, there's two different versions. You do a chronological sequel where you follow the kids of these characters, which means you don't have to recast them, or you reboot it, which is kind of like the, the starting sequence of Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I sort of feel that film is almost a template to how to do this, where- you've got uh, River Phoenix playing Harrison Ford's character. So you're going for like a prequel prequel or you're going for the son of the main lead. But, what are your thoughts? Or do you keep the character's name and just basically just 
recast. No, I reckon you could do a really fun movie that takes the premise of Romancing the Stone, you know, a mousy romance novelist um, who's sort of always dreamed of the type of adventure that she's written in books, actually getting swept up in that type of adventure and, you know, uh, take that they've, premise. They've and- done that. That's Fifty Shades of Grey. Basically, someone watched the Twilight series and just fantasised a sexy version of that, like literally in real life, and then wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. Wait, there's no vampires in Fifty Shades of Grey. Haven't you heard this story? Basically. Yeah, I think I yeah, heard Yeah, okay. So you could, that. that's basically where this goes, is that someone basically says, what's the 2020s version of Romancing the Stone. Oh right. So she's a dissatisfied blogger <laughs> who can only who can only tweet her dreams uh, and is whisked off on an adventure. Uh, and finds herself without social media and therefore ooh. has to adjust to not have being connected or you know, contactable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and who would be the the least likely person with with whom she would fall in love? Who's a who's an offline rascal? It's so obvious. I mean, it's just going to be someone who's the antithesis, which basically someone who isn't an Instagram influencer who basically teaches her the eat, pray, love version of living Ah. where she essentially, you know, parks social media, you know, embraces her inner core and grounds herself through yoga and after a few sort of like smoothies with spirulina discovers that, you know what, there's more than social media. Yeah, right. Uh, but how has she always dreamed of adventure? I suppose it'd be if you're a social media influencer or a blogger who portrayed a life where they pretended, so rather than writing a book where she lives vicariously through the protagonist. Yeah, I mean, no one reads or writes books now, so. <laughs> so what's pretty ubiquitous around the world is people who portray the best version of their life, like hashtag blessed, mm-hmm. or they portray a fake version of their life. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there was actually a documentary about this particular woman with two, two or three kids who portrayed the world that her life was amazing and in reality was in a terrible relationship and was eventually murdered by her husband and life wasn't so great after all. But people put forward their best foot and either they lie blatantly or they just show shades of the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's say she's a social media influencer, if we stick with her gender, mm-hmm. living in somewhere like New York where she's living her best life. Mm-hmm. And she's portraying everything, but it's artificial and she's tiring. She's suffering from influencer burnout. Mm-hmm. So she takes a holiday where she thinks she's being sponsored by the hotel to go to, say, uh-huh. okay. you know, Thailand or Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And she rocks up and it turns out that the hotel won't honour the sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So she's got nowhere to stay. Mm-hmm. She doesn't, doesn't have any cash and she basically has to end up being a – Dishwasher at a youth hostel, uh-huh. a backpackers hotel uh-huh. in Indonesia. Okay, I, I like it because then maybe we could have uh, where she meets uh, a dashing martial artist played by Iku White. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. And or maybe, for example, she pays her. She has to basically earn a ticket back because she only had, had enough for a one-way ticket. She had to earn a ticket back home in that time where the last thing she wants to do is be part of the present. She meets the guy who's the windsurfing instructor or something and discovers that actually 
maybe if you take yourself offline and enjoy the present elsewhere and don't share or tweet about it, you'll be sincerely happy, which is basically a version of eat, pray, love, really. But Like it's hardly a swashbuckling adventure. Well, I mean, it was when I had the bloke from The Raid in it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, before it became about windsurfing. <laughs> okay, how about this? What if you had someone like Laura Dern's character from Jurassic Park mm-hmm. who's already has a career as a, a researcher or a scientist of some sort and they go somewhere as part of their PhD uh, fellowship and – I was going to say, shenanigans and shoe. <laughs> That's your pitch. Laura Dern's character from Jurassic Park goes somewhere, not with dinosaurs, by the way, and there's shenanigans. Hmm. What type of shenanigans? Windsurfing shenanigans. <laughs> to be fair, Ben, they haven't made an awesome windsurfing movie. I mean, they've made rollerblading movies and skateboarding <laughs> movies, and they probably made some sort of movie about it, like scooters. Shit, they had minecart racing movies in Indiana Jones Temple. But where's the classic windsurfing movie? That's what we're asking. You want the Karate Kid version where at the very end, at the very end after so many attempts of trying, or the Dirty Dancing version where he holds her in the air, the guy or the girl on the, on the windsurfer does a 360 and lands it. And the audience just erupts. <laughs> yep. That's great. All right. I hand the baton to you. Walk me from the point where she meets the martial artist. Well, I mean, uh, this influencer, you know, she's dissatisfied leading her fake life. She goes on this sponsored trip to Indonesia. She 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 realizes she's been scammed or something. She suddenly finds herself like uh, stuck, yeah, like having to wash dishes or whatever. And that's where she gets embroiled in some sort of hostage situation. And what is the scam or the situation? I don't know. But look, here's what it is. It is Eat Pray Love Meets the Raid. Bang. And it, what's that title? Uh, Eat Pray Raid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I mean, we're rebooting. We can call it Romancing the Stone. That's a good title. Is there a pun? Uh, like? Romancing the the leg kick. Like what rhymes with Indonesia? Romancing the sweep, the leg sweep. What? Romancing no, the leg that's, sweep. Don't. That, that's, <laughs> that's not. No, let's not do that. That is, you know, ben, Ben's views represent only his own and not his employer or this podcast. No, Romancing the Bone. She's a archaeologist who goes in search of dinosaur bones. Yeah, we're definitely getting Michael Douglas back for that. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make a sequel to Romancing the Stone. Uh, all right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the episode. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, the amazing Sam Haywood, for making this episode and every episode sound so incredible. You can find Sam at... Showtown Sound on Insta. Gabe, where can listeners just enjoy your dulcet tones and musings this week? On Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. I'd also like to say, Ben, this is another episode where I've confidently tried to pronounce a bunch of people's names and probably mangled them. So if I did that to anyone, I say I'm sorry. Gabe, it takes two to tango and we tangoed in cultural offence unintentionally. Hey, look. I hear you. At least we didn't do the short round of impersonations. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We dodged a bullet there. So where are you? You're on the twits? The Twitter. At Gabe Dowrick. All right, done. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find this pod and all the rest on the Apple, the Spot and the Googs. 
<laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your buds. Take care and stay tuned for another, another Twin Movies episode at Twin Movies Battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Goodbye.